Welcome to the Preach and Persuade podcast. My name is Sam Parada. I'm here with Cody Weckerly and Adam Nesvold. We're continuing our series on ecclesiology or the doctrine of the church. We've talked about what the church is. We've talked about the function of the church. We've talked about the church in relationship to Israel and the kingdom and the relationship between the covenants and some eschatology. And now we're moving on to some more, I would say, back to some more practical issues, issues that every Christian should be thinking about and is experiencing week to week because we're talking about worship. Or more specifically, when we gather together on a Sunday morning, as is our custom, as is our tradition, we gather on Sunday morning and we worship God or we worship or we partake in worship, what's going on? How are we to do that? Does the Bible actually regulate that? Does it command us to do it in a certain way or not in a certain way? Are we free to do whatever the heck we want to do when we gather? And kind of the opening question, I guess, to kind of get our gears turning a little bit is when you when you come to church Sunday morning, is this about you? Is this something for you or is it something for God? Are we going there to get something, to consume something, or are we going to offer up something to, to God? And now— the answer can be both, but I think the order is crucial. And you guys, obviously, Cody, I mean, <laughs> you're sitting there chewing on some candy. That's <laughs> <laughs> funny. Uh, but obviously now, you, I mean, you planted a church. We're f- you're four years into it. Like, has that been something that has been difficult, a struggle to get people to think rightly about this question of what do we do on a Sunday morning? And does the Bible actually have something to say about it? Is this about me or is this about God? If you come into any, felt any tension with that at all? Well, yeah, I think it's something that always needs to be clarified. Mm. Even for myself, you know, it needs to be clarified. Um, and I need to remind myself of that uh, because we think in terms of what we experience when we do anything. Yeah. You know, we think about our felt wants or our felt needs or our preferences. And we kind of, unfortunately, we just live through those things. Right. right? Um, but, yeah, I mean, we talked about in one of our podcasts, two yeah. podcasts ago, when we talked about the formation of Harvest Plains Church and our early beginnings. You know, there were some times of disagreement about a myriad of things, but really Sunday morning worship was one of those things. Mm. And you could tell that there was some friction uh, in terms of what to expect on a Sunday morning. And I came to uh, Castleton, North Dakota, wanting to implement some of the things that we did, you know, did over in Michigan, my church there. Yeah. Things that I thought were very much in line with the spirit of the Reformation, yeah, where worship truly was anchored in these practices that brought sobriety and seriousness to worship. Uh, we do things like a prayer of confession. Now, plenty of churches do a prayer of confession. Uh, we want our prayer of confession to be really focused on confessing sin and it's a time of repentance and remorse and bringing before God all of our dirt and our grime, right? Yeah. And, um, you know, that that's foreign to a lot of people uh, in evangelical churches. Yeah. Your typical church service today 
is approximately 50 minutes. And uh, it seems like people have wanted to, you know, make church into kind of a quick lube uh, experience. <laughs> Jiffy you lube. Know? Yeah, just kind of <laughs> come in and get what you need. Yeah. Um, you know, fill yourself up. Yep. All right. And uh, just move on. Yep. And so everything is, you know, and a lot, I'm guessing part of this, if it's a bigger church, there's multiple services, you got to like, right. you know, stay on time, right? So yep. it, you usually have uh, four or five songs, um, you know, announcements, four or five songs, uh, some preaching, and, you know, and that's kind of it. I mean, but it's not very diverse. Worship is kind of flat. It's kind of, it's, I would say it's very simple. Hmm. Uh but yeah, I would say it's definitely been something that we've tried to inform people. Uh, we're going to do some things differently. Uh, we want our service to reflect uh, a myriad of different practices. Mm. Um, we can talk about having a pastoral prayer mm. along with our prayer of confession. We want our prayers to be varied. We want there to be intercession. We want there to be thanksgiving. We want there to be you know petitioning going on. Um, and even the songs that we sing. Right. Um, there's a lot of thought given to the songs that we sing. Are they songs that can be sung by the entire congregation together? Right. A lot of worship m- music, aside from it just being theologically haywire, <laughs> uh, <clears throat> it's very much geared towards having uh, a change in the melody that is so extreme and significant. It's very tough for a congregation to follow along with. Yeah, I can. I'm a horrible singer. Right. Well, we could talk about even in terms of the, you know, the level of our volume. Yeah. Uh, we want, I mean, because we're commanded in Scripture, it gets back to the regulative principles we're going to talk about, yep. right? But the Bible says that we are to sing to one another. Mm. We know it says pray to one another. Yep. Right? Speak the truth and love to one another. A whole bunch of other one another's. Yeah. We are to sing to one another. Yeah. Psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. Right. How can you actually sing to one another if you can't hear one another? <laughs> and so we want our volume to be such that... Yeah. Yeah. Guess what? Uh, I hear my brother sitting next to me yeah. actually singing out to the Lord. Right. Uh, and that's something that's been kind of tough because of us being in a theater. And now just recently we were uh, reminded how beautiful it is to hear people sing now that mm. we got in our, our own space and the acoustics are such that the whole space just fills up with the... With the sound. With the sound. It's the just saints. glorious, right? Yep. So... Uh, but all this is foreign, right? Because in a modern, contemporary worship environment, yeah, you have bright lights, loud music. Uh, it's simple it, and unvaried worship. Yep. Um, and it's all quick, and it's all to come in. Again, give you what you feel you need, right? And then send you out. And the focus is definitely on the experience, right? Of the, you can't even really call them church members. It's right. more like the experience of the attendee. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. The crowd. Yeah. Uh, I, th- I think, you know, pastors probably see the people in front of them more as a crowd than a congregation. It's a, it's a show. It's a show that's being put on. And we are the the staff pe- people, the members, or uh, the staff persons, the, the, the pastors, the worship leaders. They are putting on a show for these attendees for these people and and we need it to be aesthetically pleasing we you know it's a it's a concert in many ways and the lights are dim you can't see each other 
all you see is the people up on the stage as is true of any concert that you would go to. And yeah, you want that to be true if you're going to go watch a concert. But again, this all comes back to this question. What are we doing on a Sunday morning? Who is this for? What What is this about? And at the end of the day, has God has God actually regulated it? Has he actually commanded us, given us commands on how or what we are to do when we assemble together to worship him corporately? And that goes back to the definition again of the church. It is It is an assembly. When we gather together, we are the church. Now, what are we to do when we do this, when we assemble? And that's really, again, this discussion that we're having right now. But it's clear from, you know, mega churches and everything that's going on today, even virtual church and all this discussion, like a lot of people are really, really, really confused of what Sunday morning is for yep. and and what we are to do. So you mentioned this term, regulative principle, and we we talk about that in light of another term called the normative principle. And these two principles are key. I'm going to, I'm going to, quote Greg Allison, I'm going to give these definitions, and then we're going to build our case for our position, which is the reg- regulative principle, which is basically saying God has commanded what we are to do when we gather together to worship him. And we aren't just free to do whatever we want. I'm kind of already giving the definitions, but here are the definitions. Uh, the regulative principle teaches that with regard to worship, whatever is commanded in scripture is required, and whatever is not commanded is forbidden. I'm going to say that again. The the regulative principle teaches that with regard to worship, whatever is commanded in Scripture is required, and whatever is not commanded is forbidden. The normative principle states that the church is free to incorporate any elements into its worship unless Scripture either explicitly or implicitly prohibits them. Again, the normative principle states that the church is free to incorporate any elements into its worship unless Scripture either explicitly or implicitly prohibits them. So, that, I mean, that right there, just, if you're just listening, just think about your experiences with churches. If you've been to a variety of churches, if you've, you know, moved to a new city and you did what's called church shopping, you've gone around and you just start to think about what are they doing? And, and there is this, there are, there is a difference. And I would say most churches, it's very clear, most churches in America, at least today, operate according to the normative principle. Anything is free for us unless the scripture explicitly or implicitly prohibits it. Yep. And we're coming from the regulative principle of saying, no, whatever the scripture commands, we have to do it. Says we have to do worship. We we are commanded to do it. We can't leave any element out. And if it doesn't command it, we are prohibited from including it. I mean, that's two drastically different views of what we do on a Sunday morning. I, I think it should be said, though, that if you're going to press the regulative principle yeah. um, to its most logical conclusion, I think almost everybody violates it, even the people who say that they are in accordance with the regulative yeah. principle. Yeah. Um, because there are still things I think every church does that they're like, we do this because we think it's wise. Yeah. We don't think it's sinful. Announcements are always in that category. <laughs> right. Yeah. Announcements <laughs> are in there. So yeah. um, I don't know. It's a tough standard. Yeah. Uh, to say that you're a pure, pure yeah. regulative principle right. person. But generally speaking, you're going to be on much better ground if you're tr- if you're letting your regulative principle be your guide as opposed to the normative principle. Exactly. Right? And so 
um, it, it definitely puts the brakes on. Yeah. And uh, makes you think, makes you be serious, makes you search the scriptures. But I just want to clarify that because I don't think I could say like, yeah, Harvest Plains Church, like we are strong, regulative, principle people. Right. Like we follow the regulative principle to a T. Right. Uh, is it an important guide for us? Is it a helpful principle for us? Absolutely. Yeah. Uh, because we do understand that God cares about how he is worshipped, right? And he wants to be worshipped in spirit and in truth. Mm-hmm. And he hasn't been silent on the issue of how he's supposed to be worshipped. Right. Uh, what we do on a Sunday morning when we come together, the Lord's Day. Yep. Um, there's a lot said in the Bible um, about what goes on there. And so we try to stick to that. Um and if you don't stick to that, you get into some really bizarre and weird practices. I mean, you guys can probably think of a few things that you've seen done on a Sunday morning where you've gone, what in the world is going on here? Yeah. Right? Like, you know, bizarre things like, and this is maybe a Pentecostal excess, right? But like holy laughter and people rolling around Being in aisles. Being in the spirit and soaking. It, and- <laughs> I'll never forget when someone asked me during a membership meeting, you remember this, Adam? Um, where somebody asked me. Uh, you know, if somebody wanted to like flag twirl, yeah, wanted to, to wave some flags around, would that be okay? And my answer was them, uh, to them was, well, uh, we don't see anything in the Bible that actually commands us to wave flags right on a Sunday morning. So we won't be adding that to our worship practices anytime soon. And you gave that answer through the lens of the regulative principle. Exactly. Yes. So if you don't think there's practical application for the regulative principle, there you go. There's, there, a, there's a clear pastoral experience yeah. from a membership meeting, right? Exactly. And, uh, you know, there's, you know, maybe it's a skit that you it, see. You hear this all the on. time, especially around the holidays. Churches start to put on skits and dance shows and have their kids do all sorts of things up front on a Sunday morning. Yep. <laughs> um, you can talk about. Uh, you know, like missionary updates. I mean, should you have that as part of your, your church service? Like that's a, that's a common thing. That's a common thing. Yeah. Uh, sometimes it takes the place of preaching itself. That's yeah. Right. Uh, we mentioned it in our last podcast, I think, but, uh, or two podcasts ago, but I mean, the idea of, you know, churches canceling their weekly gathering to go out and do service projects. Right. Uh, is that acceptable? Or is like this coming together thing? Like again, it's commanded by the Bible. Mm-hmm. Don't forsake <laughs> it's, the assembly. It's not up for a, a debate, right? So all sorts of uh, yeah, exactly. implications that flow from what you think about the regulative principle and right. And it's important to realize too, like this, what we do on a Sunday morning is significant and unique. We're not doing this every day. Uh, this isn't like the regulative principle doesn't apply to you seven days a week, 24 hours a day. Like if you want to go in your home and listen to worship music and twirl some flags, <laughs> be, <laughs> do what you want to do. Yep. Like you're not doing anything really immoral and gross. Like that's not that. But we're talking about, again, very specifically, the gathering of the saints for the purpose of worshiping the covenant God. And worshiping, obviously, this new covenant community, Christ, and remembering and, and celebrating and displaying and preaching the gospel message. It's a very specific time. So that's what we're talking about. Again, it's not to say like, oh, I can't 
listen to this type of music or whatever when I'm in my home or whatever when I'm going for a jog or whatever. So that's important to realize. Yeah, and and I think it's also important to point out that you know there are there are other areas like non-worship areas in our theology and in our life when we would say if scripture is silent then you have freedom to choose along biblical principles. Yeah, be biblically wise. What you would do. Um, you know, Paul Paul speaks along this in like Romans 14. Right with thing, things like um and, and things meat. like that. So this this idea of well, if scripture doesn't speak to it, then you can't do it. Um it, it is not applicable to areas uh, outside of worship. Right. Right. So uh, we would say use like like you said, be biblically wise. In, in areas like that. So, like you said, we're speaking very specifically about worship, mm-hmm. and there's reasons for that that mm-hmm. we'll get into as we mm-hmm. talk through this. Yeah. And with that in mind, you know, I think I kind of alluded to it, but, I mean, th- there are certain things that the church has been called to do, yeah. right? And if you just wanted to simplify what we've been called to do, you could you could say it with these three things, and I'm getting this from a book called What Happens When We Worship Jonathan Landry Cruz. Mm. Um, but in this book, page 22, Jonathan writes, the church has three tasks or purposes, worship, discipleship, and missions. Yeah. That, that the church is called to these three works is beyond dispute. The trouble is seeing how worship can be the primary purpose, especially when discipleship and missions are so blatantly spelled out in the Great Commission. Yeah. But, you know, as, uh, our brother Adam pointed out, um, you know, the reason we care about discipleship, the reason we care about missions, is because all of that leads to worship. Right. Right. And when we come together on Sunday morning, it is the, in, in, in a certain sense, it's the purest mm. expression of worship. It's the fullest mm. expression of worship. It's the most complete and total expression of right. worship. And you see that this is a pattern that we are continuing in. Right. God has always, always desired to be worshipped by his people mm. when they come together mm. on a weekly, regular occurrence. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and that didn't change with the establishment of the church, right? Right. And so knowing then that it's our primary purpose to worship God, and that is the total or most complete picture of uh, worshiping God when we come together, and then the question is, what do we do once we get there? Yeah, exactly. And it's important to, even just in light of that, in the light of the Great Commission, too, it's like even John Piper's famous quote, like, missions exist because worship does it or something like that. Like, we are, we're we're being missional, we're bringing the gospel to new places, and then we're, we're teaching people to observe all that Christ has commanded in order to create peer worshipers. That's the point. So throughout the week— we are continuing to, you know, obviously be sanctified by the word, read the word devotionally, encourage the saints daily so that we don't fall back into the deceitfulness of sin so that when we gather, we can offer up the Lord pure and holy worship. So, yes, and then we go out to new places so that we can bring the gospel so that we can create new worshipers that will then worship God. So, yes, worship is the eternal eternal purpose of mankind to worship God forever and ever. And we create worshipers to do that through evangelism and discipleship. Um, 
But yeah, when we gather together, it's to do this eschatological thing. It's to worship God as the assembly. And that kind of answers your first question, I guess, that you asked, right? Which is... Yeah. Is this for me or is this for God? Exactly. It's for God. It is totally for God, um, you know, or first and foremost for Him. Now, obviously, is there something that happens to us when we come to worship God? Absolutely. Yeah. Is there even something on a a very personal... um, Even experiential. Experiential level. Yes. Absolutely. Yes. But all of that happens... If you start in the right place. Right, exactly. <laughs> yes. So building our case for the regulative principle here a little bit now, or just the idea that God has commanded how we are to worship, we're going to go back to the Old Testament in the kind of the hallmark text that maybe if you're familiar with this discussion, if you're listening, that people talk about is from Leviticus 10, the very beginning of Le- Leviticus 10 with Nahab and Abihu. And I'll just read this text for you, um, and then we'll discuss it a little bit. Now, Nahab... And Abayu, the sons of Aaron, each took his censer. Now keep in mind, this is this is in the context of Israel in the wilderness when they're wandering around for forty years, and there was the tabernacle, and 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 you know, central to Israel's worship of God, their corporate worship of God, was the offering up of sacrifices. So just keep that in mind. Now Nahab and Abayu, the sons of Aaron, each took his censer. They they were priests and put fire in it and laid incense on it and offered unauthorized fire before the Lord, which he had not commanded them. And fire came out from before the Lord and consumed them, and they died before the Lord. Then Moses said to Aaron, This is what the Lord has said. Among those who are near me, I will be sanctified, and before all the people, I will be glorified. And Aaron held his peace. So this unauthorized fire that they offered up, we could even translate that as strange fire. <laughs> and John MacArthur obviously made a conference and wrote right. a book on strange fire uh, talking about kind of the Pentecostal movement and charismatic movement. Anyway, the point is, is it's very clear. They offered up unauthorized or strange fire before the Lord, which he had not commanded them. There is where we kind of build our case for the regulative principle. Okay, they're offering up sacrifices and offerings, burnt offerings and th- things like that as, as Israel is worshiping. And they did something that the Lord had not commanded them to do. And what does he do? He he consumes them with the fire. The fire goes out and it, it, it literally kills Nahab and Abihu. There's immediate judgment. Immediate judgment. Why? He says, so I will be sanctified before all the people and I will be glorified so that they know I'm I'm set apart. I'm holy. You don't mess with me. You don't mess with how you worship me. This isn't about you. This isn't about how you're feeling or what you want to do. If you want to, you know, they obviously knew the Lord's commands. They were priests. They were instructed. They knew what he had commanded, and they decided to offer up something different. Yeah, and they aren't the only example. No. You can think about Uzzah especially. Yeah. Where the tabernacle is on, you know, it was supposed to be carried— Right. Yeah, the Ark but of the Covenant the was supposed covenant to be carried was... by poles. They didn't have the poles for some reason, so they put it on a cart. Well, they kind of took that from the Philistines because the Philistines returned the Ark yeah. on a cart. Yeah. And I imagine they looked at this and went, yeah, that works pretty good. Yeah, that works. <laughs> yeah, who cares? It's not like God really cares about the details. And then, right, and then the <laughs> next thing you know, the oxen stumble. Yep. Right? And then Uzzah reaches out, he touches the Ark, and he's Dead. killed. Right there. Immediately. Yep. yep. Judgment. And, uh, you know, 
just another reminder, what God prescribes should be followed. Yes. Yeah. And there will be consequences if you don't. Right. Yeah, and I don't remember exactly how R.C. Sproul put it, but the the mistake that Uzzah made was thinking that his hand was less polluted than the dirt. Of the earth, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> it's like, whoa. <laughs> exactly. So, I mean, that, that kind of just grounds this idea that we have. Like, obviously, uh, our new covenant worship is, uh, is different than the old covenant worship in the sense of we're not gathering together and offering up animal sacrifices. We're, we're gathering together and we're preaching each other the gospel and hearing the gospel preached about the one sacrifice, Christ, who offered himself up as the Lamb of God for us. Yeah, but do you know it's not different? And this is something that right. I think we don't, we don't have a good enough uh, respect for in um, American society today is that we are worshiping the same holy God exactly. that— that executed Nahab and Abihu and Uzzah. Yep. The same God who has the same standards, who has the same character and the same nature and the same zeal for the fame of his name and his glory, who will say, I will be sanctified. I will be set apart. I am holy and you will treat me as such. Yeah. You're, you don't have liberty to, to yeah, mock me and revile me and, and slander me mm-hmm. in that way. And that's the thing. That's what happens when we, when we uh, worship God how we want to be, how we want to worship God. We're really slandering Him. We're, we're, we're dishonoring Him. We're saying you're not as holy as you as you really are. And 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 I want to. It's in a sense. It's almost like creating some type of idol. And I don't want to worship the true God. I want to worship something that I want to worship. Yeah, and the danger of that is Oof. that we become like the things that we worship, right? And that's a principle laid down uh, actually in the Bible. Yeah, in the (laughs) Psalms. What is that, Psalm 135? This is 135. Something like that. It's right around in the middle middle 130s, I think, where, yeah, you become like the idols, deaf, mute, dumb. Yep. (laughs) So that's key. Uh, Obviously... We're worshiping. We're gathering together to worship the one true God. Um, we're worshiping. We're offering up praise to the Father uh, through the work of the Son by the power of the Holy Spirit. It's triune worship. It's a trinitarian worship. Um, it's centered around the work of Christ, the gospel, and and when we offer up true praise to the true God, we then. What do we do? We then become like him. Mm-hmm. We're sanctified. That's why true worship is a sanctifying thing. Mm-hmm. It actually conforms us to the image of Christ. It makes us holy as he is holy. But when we start to corrupt worship and we start to do things that are manly and earthly and and not prescribed in Scripture, we dilute it. It loses its sanctifying edge. It's just It's dishonoring to God, and it makes us more like the world, if anything. Yeah, and you're touching on a a critical thing here yeah. where, where we are now touching on the experiential aspect of worship. Right. There's something that does happen to us. Yeah. We are shaped by how we worship. Right. And that's why pastors ought to give careful thought uh, to the order of their service and what they include and what they exclude. Yep. Your people are being shaped by mm. everything that you do. Mm. And the Reformers really understood this. They did. 
I mean, and that's why when there was a recovery of the gospel, there was also a re- reformation of the liturgy itself. Yes. Because they knew that people were catching theology, right? Mm. Things are more caught than taught. Yep. Right? They were catching it just as much as they were being taught it. Yeah. And whatever you experienced on the Sunday morning, right? I mean, you were going to leave thinking about that the rest of the week. Mm. So even in the shape and the flow and how you start and what you do in the middle and how you end, I mean, all of that was carefully thought about. They wanted the worship service itself not only to include the elements yeah. that the Bible says must be included, but that they would also be shaped yeah. by the order of service itself. Right. Did you have a text from Malachi that you wanted to read? Well, I think in Malachi, it's very interesting, you know, what what God says against the priests. Uh, I'm in chapter 2 here, and, you know, uh, so so God is is making an argument here um, against against the priests, and... um, Sorry, I need to find it again here. Or, I'm sorry, this is this is chapter 1. And so it's chapter 1, verse 6. And, and he says, uh, A son honors his father and a servant his master. If, if then I am a father, where is my honor? And if I am a master, where is my fear? Says the Lord of hosts to you, O priests, who despise my name. But you say, how have we despised your name? And uh, God responds in verse 7, by offering polluted food upon my altar. Um, And then then he goes on uh, to say, but you say, how have have we polluted you? And uh, God says, by saying that the Lord's table may be despised, when you offer blind animals in sacrifice, is that not evil? And it is evil because, uh, you know, the the Levitical law forbids that. Right. and then, um, so then it goes on, and then in verse 10, it says, Oh, that there were one among you who would shut the doors, that you might not kindle fire on my altar in vain. I have no pleasure in you, says the Lord of hosts, and I will not accept an offering from your hand. Uh, so God would rather that the worship in the temple that's being done by these priests would just stop. Yeah. Rather than them... Um, performing these these acts of what they would call worship that are being done incorrectly. Yes, and um, and that God is saying actually despises His name. Yeah, oof, like that is quite the rebuke. I mean, we think about how often we hear people who I mean, I mean, hear it a lot in the charismatic world. Oh, these people they just so love Jesus. They love Jesus so much, but yet you see these clear just unbiblical elements to their worship services. And you go, I mean, if you if you learn anything from that Malachi text, it's like if somebody could just shut the door, rather that no worship was going on here than improper worship. Obviously, that's why John MacArthur wrote his Strange Fire book and had his conference, because there was clearly something wrong about the way that some charismatics were worshiping the Lord. Yeah. So, But he, here's what's fascinating, yeah. is that... Um, in Jesus' last week of his life, um, when he cleared out the temple after the triumphal entry, oh yeah, he not only shut the doors of the temple, <laughs> but most likely caused worship to stop 
yeah. in the temple with his actions. But he did literally, the, the text tells us that he literally did shut the doors he to did the what, temple. He did what that was, yeah. was being said in the Malachi text. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And that's something. And so, I mean, it's just a... And another thing to draw from that Malachi text too is like, okay, there's kind of a, a dual accountability here. But I mean, the priests are accountable. The people are accountable. Uh, the priests more so though, like they're they're kind of like kind of saying, well, they're... Br- you could assume like they're bringing us these blind animals. The people are, well, yeah, but you know that you aren't to offer up these blind animals. Say to the people, go bring me something proper and right. Yeah. And and so there is this reality of the priests were the shepherds of of Israel, uh, the under shepherds of God, the true shepherd. And now Christ is the true shepherd of the new covenant community, and pastors and elders are under shepherds of Him, and they are, they have this responsibility, like to lead the sheep in proper worship, to make sure that what's going on on a Sunday morning is biblical. Mm-hmm. And the sheep are going to come, and they're going to butt the shepherd, the under-shepherd, and say, well, let's, let's do this. Let's flag twirl. Let's, let's do a dance show. Let's, you know, let's put on a laser show. Blah, 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 blah. Let's add this element and this thing. And it is the job of the pastor elders today as under-shepherds of Christ to be like, no, 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 no. We're not doing that. You're not bringing me this blind animal, and I'm not going to offer it up on the altar. Mm-hmm. Not going to happen. Go get the right animal. So the same can be applied today. You're going to have people in your church. Well, let's do this, let's do this, let's do this. This, this, that, 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 this. And hopefully you have an elder and pastors or plurality of elders, hopefully, that can say, uh, no, that's not biblical. This is what we view about worship. Not going to happen here. Yeah, it's just critical at every single elder understand yeah. what God's Word commands in relationship to the weekly gathering of the saints. Yep, and it's it's serious. Yep, so serious. Mm-hmm. Um, well, with that said, I mean that lays a good groundwork. Now, what are the elements? What are the elements? Yeah, exactly. What are we actually commanded to do? Yep, and uh, you know what? Again, several podcasts ago, we were talking about how we're commanded to. Read the Bible, yep. right? Preach the Bible, sing the Bible, pray the Bible. Uh, but of course, that wasn't exhaustive. You know, there are other things that we could have mentioned. We certainly didn't mention the ordinances, which are significant, right? Right. right. And so we're called to celebrate the ordinances. Um, I would again just refer to what happens when we worship. Great book. I uh, think anybody who's a pastor should certainly go buy this book. Um, or if you just want to understand not only why you do what you do on Sunday morning, but what you do um, on Sunday morning and what God's Word says, go buy this book. Uh, but in any case, um, let me just mention a few of the things um, that are included uh, in the worship service. Uh, we could talk about how we are to... Uh, uh, well, again, we're, we are to just publicly assemble, right? Got to start there. That's commanded. That's not optional. That's not a preference. It's not something that we came up with. That was God's idea. Uh, and then we, we listen to preaching, we pray, and we partake the elements. And I think there's a lot of other things that happen, you know, um, that could even be within praying. There's, like I mentioned earlier, there are specific types, types of, of prayers, prayer. and mm-hmm. there's reasons we pray the way that we pray, and add the different elements that we do. Uh, we also can't forget the fact that we have people give, mm-hmm. right? Uh, and 
You know, there's a lot of different places you could go to to actually think about um, worship and what goes on there. Obviously, we mentioned Acts 2.42 last time yeah. we were together, and that's critical, right? Because, I mean, here you have the disciples that are getting together. They're devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching. Yep. Um, they are devoting themselves to the breaking of bread. Yep. Uh, that's a reference to... Communion. Communion. Lord's Supper. Uh, certainly they were sharing meals together yep. as well, but I mean, that, that, w- that does seem to be a reference to communion. And they were devoting themselves to prayers. Yep. Um, but as you look through the New Testament epistles, then you see a lot of other practices as well. Uh, the reading of Scripture <laughs> yeah. is mentioned, right? Um, Colossians 4.16, 1 Timothy 4.13, 1 Thessalonians 5.27, all places that mention reading Yep. Uh, or refer to it. Uh, singing uh, is to be done in worship, right? Yep. Uh, Ephesians we, 5. Yep, Ephesians 5. Um, we we see giving gifts for the needs of the church yep. and to the poor. Uh, you can look at Acts 6, Romans 12, 8, verse 13, uh, 2 Corinthians 8, verses 19 through 21. Um there's the public confession of faith, and uh, and then also the confession of sin. First John one eight uh, through verse ten. Right, right. So, so those are that's the thing. We have what we call the elements. That's those these these commanded aspects to our corporate worship, and then we have the form, and that's a key distinction too. And every. You know, in different times and places and contexts, the form of the element may look a little bit different. So this is where people get into the discussions of, well, we're commanded to sing to the Lord, mm-hmm. but are we commanded to only sing psalms, uh, old hymns? Uh, can we sing contemporary hymns? Can we use instruments? Uh, can we have an electric guitar? Can we have an acoustic guitar? Um, all those things are forms of the command, which is sing to the Lord. So there's that. We are the regulative principle is all about the the elements, and there, it leaves obviously freedom for different forms or expressions of those elements. So again, preaching is what we would call an essential element to our Sunday worship service. But then we have this discussion of well, should it be expository or should it be topical or what should we have? How do we do our sermons? How, what what should be the length of our sermons? And the form now can vary. Obviously, we think there's wisdom in expository preaching, but we're not. Obviously, Harvest Plains practices expository preaching on a regular basis, but there are still times where you do topical sermons. So there's that. Well, you can be topical and still expository. Yeah, exactly. But, so, you know, I mean, first and foremost, you know, sort of as you mentioned earlier, it's not appropriate to skip the sermon to do some sort of other presentation exactly. or activity. Right. All these elements should, I mean, we're, we we believe should be there every time we gather and that we shouldn't leave out any of them. Right. And that's pleasing to the Lord. That offers him up good worship that he enjoys. <laughs> um, now, I want to kind of highlight the aspect just more theologically about this of, again, we are gathering if you remember from a previous podcast, we talked about how Greg Allison used the word logocentric. 
we're gathering around the word of God. It's centered around the word of God. And that both means incarnate word, Christ himself, who is the word made flesh, John 1, but also the revealed word, the scriptures themselves. But Christ and the revealed word are very similar in this very interesting way. And I think Luke 24 really highlights this in the road to Emmaus. And I'm just going to kind of read a portion of this, this text for you. Uh, just to help you see this a little bit. So we're, we're gathering to worship Christ, who is God, obviously, the incarnate word. But Christ is currently in heaven. Again, we've talked about he's seated at the right hand of the Father. That's where he's at. He's ascended into heaven. He's not, and he's, he's embodied. He is in one place at one time. He is fully God, fully man forever, eternity future. So the body Christ, Christ himself in the flesh, is not in all of our local church gatherings. Yes, we are worshiping him, but how are we uh, How are we gazing upon Christ? How are we experiencing Christ in our local assemblies? Well, we're, we're experiencing him and we're gazing upon him and we're beholding him in worship through the word of God. And this is key. And so... Christ makes sure his disciples understand this in Luke 24. Just listen to this. Starting in verse 13, that very day, this is right after his resurrection, two of them were going to a village named Emmaus, about seven miles from Jerusalem. And they were talking with each other about all these things that had happened. While they were talking and discussing together, Jesus himself drew near and went with them. Excuse me, and went with them. But their eyes were kept from recognizing him. That's really key. Their eyes were kept from recognizing him. And he said to them, What is this conversation that you are holding with each other as you walk? And they stood still, looking sad. Then one of them, named Cleopas, answered him, Are you the only visitor to Jerusalem who does not know the things that have happened there in these days? And he said to them, What things? And they said to him, concerning Jesus of Nazareth, a man who was a prophet, mighty indeed, and word before God and all people, and how our chief priests and rulers delivered him up to be condemned to death and crucified him. But we had hoped that he was the one to redeem Israel. Yes, and besides all this, it is now the third day since these things happened. Moreover, some women of our company amazed us. They were at the tomb early this morning, and when they did not find his body, they came back saying that they had even seen a vision of angels who said that he was alive. Some of those who were with us went to the tomb and found it just as the women had said, but him they did not find, or him they did not see. And he said to them, O foolish ones and slow of heart, to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? And beginning with Moses and the prophets, he interpreted to them in all scriptures the things concerning himself. So just just to pause, what did Jesus do? He kept them from recognizing him. They were with him. Like they knew who he was and they didn't, he kept them from recognizing him. And then what did he do? He then opened up the Old Testament scriptures and interpreted to them all the scriptures and the things concerning himself. Verse 28. So they drew near to the village to which they were going. He acted as if he was going further, but they urged him strongly saying, stay with us for it is toward evening and the day is now far spent. So he went in to stay with them. When he was at table with them, he took the bread and blessed it and broke it and gave it to them. That's interesting. Kind of a, again, reference to the Last Supper, the upper room. When he was at table with them, he took the bread and blessed it and broke it and gave it to them. And their eyes were opened 
and they recognized him, and he vanished from their sight. They said to each other, Did not our hearts burn within us while he talked to us on the road, while he opened to us the scriptures? And they rose that same hour and returned to Jerusalem, and they found the eleven and those who were with them and gathered together, saying, The Lord has risen indeed, and he has appeared to Simon. Then he told them, told what he had, what had happened on the road and how he was known to them in the breaking of the bread. So that is so key. What are these two things? Christ reveals himself to these disciples in both interpreting to them the scriptures and in the breaking of the bread. So Christ is at the right hand of the Father right now, ascending into heaven. How do we experience and how do we see him today? We see him in the preaching of the word and in the Lord's Supper. Mm -hmm. And so those two things are so central to how we gaze upon our risen Savior. And through gazing upon him and beholding him, how we are then sanctified. And that's that's why our worship is is logocentric, centered on the word, Christocentric, centered on Christ. So I mean it's it's the scriptures. It's the Lord's table. I mean, it's amazing. It's unbelievable. Yeah. That's all I have to say about that. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It, it is um it is unique to what happened after the Reformation, that preaching became such a central centerpiece um, element yeah. in the worship service. Right. Uh, if you go into maybe a Catholic church service, like that just wouldn't be right. the case. Right. Their centerpiece was the Eucharist, the Mass. The Eucharist, right. absolutely. Mm -hmm. And so that's a change for people when they come into a Protestant environment. Yeah. Like, why do you have this guy up there? Right. Why, why do you devote so much time to listening to the guy say the stuff about the Bible? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, right there, it, Luke 24, it, he opened up to them the scriptures. But it's also true that um, that I think the Lord's Supper has not been practiced the way the way it, it was um, in the apostolic age. Mm -hmm. Right. Yeah, I mean, it was clear in the early church, we know that this was the practice of the early church, that uh, you would have... Uh, worship together, and you would have everyone that was in the service for that. Um, but then there came the time where the people who had not become fully devoted followers of Christ at this point, or baptized members, right, they were dismissed. And then there was communion. Yeah. Right? And that was that was the highlight of the service. Right. And, uh, you know, when you think about that, I guess you could say that Protestants have done certainly a disservice to the Lord's Supper yeah. in many ways, yeah. right? Um, certainly we restored what should have been a, a very important practice, the preaching of God's Word. Right. But we've also diminished the practice of... The table. The table. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yep. And uh, hence one reason why Harvest Plains Church, I'd like us to move in the direction of more <laughs> regular observance of the Lord's oh, Supper. Oh, wow. You're yeah. hearing it right now. Here. There you go. There's, it's my, I mean, <laughs> there's my confession. It stinks. Yeah, like, yeah it stinks. <laughs> when, when, you, when you really think about how uh, the Lord's Supper was practiced then, like I, I, I think about 1 Corinthians 5 and how we often uh, apply or, or, or teach what Paul says when he says... You know, uh, but now I, now I am writing to you to not associate with anyone who bears the name of a brother if he is guilty of sexual immorality or greed, um, 
uh, or is an idolater, reviler, drunkard, or swindler not to even eat with such a one, you know, and, um, you know, there's teaching that says, oh, you know, um, you know, if, if church discipline occurs, um, you know, you shouldn't even have have dinner with those people. But I, I think what Paul is actually saying here, and because and, um, he earlier, like just just three verses earlier, he's actually talking about Christ, our Passover lamb has been sacrificed. Let us therefore celebrate the festival, not with the old leaven, um, the leaven of malice and evil, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. And so he's making a reference to, to, um, to Christ's sacrifice. So he's making a reference even to, to, um, to the to the Lord's Supper. There, uh, I, I think Paul is actually saying, like, you know, um, don't don't have those people at your love feast at your Lord's Supper table. Yeah, don't eat with them at the Lord's Supper. Right. Because in um, in verse thirteen, two verses after, he says, "Don't eat with them." He says, "Purge the evil person from among you." Right. So I, I think he's actually saying, I don't think he's saying, "Don't have dinner with them." I think he's saying, "Don't have them at your communion table." Yeah, exactly. And th- and that's that helps too with the idea. Well, what happens if this person is like my family member and I mm-hmm. have to eat dinner with them on a Tuesday night? Well, yeah, it probably makes sense that he's talking about the Lord's Supper. Yeah, yeah. Um, you know, so you know when we think about like what are we supposed to be like, um, like doing from a regulated principle standpoint? Um, well, the the ordinances are are chief among them. They're there. They're yeah. there. So we have preaching the word, we have praying the word, we have reading the word, we have singing the word, uh, and we have displaying the word through the ordinances. Mm-hmm. And that's kind of that. These are the elements that we say are essential to our worship and giving and giving <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. which is which is essential uh in the sense of we, we need finances to sustain this and and this well, it's essential because it's in the bible and Sam. it's in the bible and it honors god yeah yeah, yeah 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 he says yes of course and when you gather give <laughs> so supply, supply the needs of the saints. yeah and just one more text to just ground home this idea of the importance of preaching too and and why you know, just me personally in my ministry, why I, you know, I'm a big and just why your ministry is called preach and persuade. Preach, yeah, yeah. This is central <laughs> to like, yeah, <laughs> preaching is so important. Obviously, I feel called to preach, but man, preaching. Like starting in First Timothy three sixteen, all Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work, and then immediately. Paul goes into, I charge you, he's talking to Timothy, in the presence of God and Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead and by his appearing in his kingdom. Like, it doesn't get any, that's the weightiest of charges. Like, the weightiest of like, like I'm going to amp up what I'm about to say by the, legitimately the appearing of Christ, his second coming and his judgment throne. Like, it doesn't get any higher than that. What does he charge Timothy to do? Preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. Reprove, rebuke, and exhort with complete patience, patience and teaching. What's this word that he's to preach? Well, contextually, it's all—it's the scriptures. All scriptures breathed out by God. That's the word that he is to preach. So, I mean, these are the last words that Paul says to Timothy. He's about to die. This is it, and that's the last charge. Talk about important, probably. Yeah. <laughs> like man, 
We don't. So we don't take <laughs> Cody and I's toes just touched. It was a little. Was weird. It was a little intimate. <laughs> <laughs> Talk about serious. You guys are wearing stuff. shoes. Yeah. Come on now. <laughs> uh, yeah, preaching the word. I mean, that's why. Yeah, it. That's why probably the longest portion of a worship service, in many ways, is is the sermon. Uh, it's just, you know, maybe it might be half of it, but it is a. We probably give the most time to that element itself. Because it is just so important. That's how we see Christ. We gaze upon him through the word. And we are we are sanctified and made like him through the word. We hear the gospel through the word. I mean, it, it is so important that preaching is is a part of our, our worship. And that we don't replace it with <laughs> a PowerPoint on the missionary update. Or a, a dance recital from the kids. Yeah, um... It would be interesting to add First Corinthians. I mean, there's a lot we could. Oh add to man, our discussion twelve through thirteen, talking, fourteen, talking about obviously Paul's instructions to the church and oh, eleven with the Lord's Supper too. Yeah, mm. yep. Uh, there's a lot of instruction in there, uh, and we could table that for a f- further discussion. One, when we have a discussion on the ordinances specifically, and two, if we have time, we could do a, a whole discussion just on spiritual gifts. Because there was clearly something going on in the worship service that doesn't seem to be um, driving. <laughs> well, yeah, I think <laughs> things things that were missing today that clearly were present then. Yeah, right. And yeah. so I just want to avoid the fact that like, oh, we have biblical worship because you know we're doing it just how the early church did it. Right. It's like, no, there's Not some necessarily. things that were going on there that we don't have. Yep. Yeah, I, I think the one thing that that is relevant, um, particularly from First Corinthians eleven, um, or you could say that in the Corinthian church that is sort of relevant to the um, like unauthorized or strange fire is that the the Corinthian church had very unorderly worship. Yeah. It was just disorderly. Yeah. And that is the correction that Paul really levies in yes. in First Corinthians. Um, uh, I guess you'd say 10 and 11. But um, there's an expectation... Um, from God that the worship service is is well I guess you could just say that worship is orderly yeah mm-hmm. well he and, says at the end of 14 that all things should be done in order yeah um, and that uh, you could say that it's organized that that, mm. yeah. that there's an there's a flow yeah yeah that it's, it's not chaotic yep that it, that it's it's not a cacophony. Mix. So we are sense. commanded to have orderly worship, but we are not told what order worship is to be done. Right. Right. Yeah. We're told the elements. We just mm-hmm. talked about the elements. Yeah. But as you mentioned, the elements can take on different forms. forms. Yeah. Yeah. So or, where you want to have preaching in your worship service, where you want to have songs located, where you want to celebrate communion, right? Yeah. There's some flexibility with where you stick the elements in. Yeah. And so I kind of want to get into like, well, how do you arrive at the form that you arrive at then? Yeah, because there is a wisdom in the way in which you should or mm-hmm. could order it. Yeah. yeah. Or, or if I can make just one more distinction, like you know, um, we're told to make a joyful noise unto the Lord, but that noise has to make sense. Yeah. It has to be. Yeah, it's able... not a cacophony. Right. Yeah. It it it's it makes sense. It's intelligible. Yeah. It's mindful. Mm-hmm. I'm using very like, <laughs> like you have to understand words there. what what you are saying and singing. Yes. And other people have to be able to understand exactly. Too. Mm-hmm. Yes. So no ecstatic tongues in the middle of worship service. That, no, no, no. But maybe we'll 
getting that with spiritual gifts. But you, okay, yes. Okay, Cody, how do you decide how to order the elements? Because well, it's thoughtful. You've thought about it. Yeah, well, I have been quite informed by uh, Reformation worship. Yeah, uh, it's a big book. It's a very big book, and uh, the subtitle here is Liturg- Liturgies from the Past for the Present. Mm. Uh, perhaps the most valuable part of this entire book occurs in the first two chapters, though, and that's where they essentially lay a groundwork for uh, Reformation worship. Yeah. Right. What is the theology of worship? And uh, what they essentially do is they refer to three events in the Old Testament as kind of a backdrop for Reformation worship. Uh, We could talk about Eden, how Mm. at the beginning of the Bible, we see God communing with his people. Mm. Um, One would say that maybe there's a call to worship, which comes through his command, right? And there's a response required or expected that Adam and Eve would be faithful to God's command, right? And there's fellowship with God uh, and communion with him uh, before the fall. All of this is going on. Uh, Obviously, the fall happens. Um, All of a sudden, the relationship with God is drastically affected. Uh, The next event that they jump to then is Sinai, Mm. right? And now you have worship in a sin-cursed world, yeah. right? You have a post-fall approach to God now. Right. And as you look at the people gathering at Mount Sinai, and they go to Exodus and beginning in 19, they'll mention how there's a gathering, right? First there's a gathering, then there's a calling um, in verses 3 through 9, and then there's a cleansing. The people of God are they're preparing to meet with the Lord, right? They're washing their garments and they're... They're getting ready to meet with him. Um, Then uh, they say, hey, there's mediated mediated access through an appointed prophet priest. Uh, There's then the receiving of the law, right? The Ten Commandments in the Book of the Covenant uh, in chapters 20 through 24. Then there is the consecration, the promise of obedience. We will do this. Uh, Sacrifices are given. There is divine communication, the Book of the Covenant. Uh, There is more cleansing that goes on. There's mediated access to God. There's a fellowship meal. Mm -hmm. There's all these different things that go on. Um, And then the next event they go to is Zion um, with Solomon in 2 Chronicles chapters 5 through 7. Again, there's a gathering. Then there's a cleansing. There's mediated access through priests. There's praise. Glory of God fills the temple. Uh, Divine communication. Word of God through Solomon, uh, fire and glory from heaven, praise, cleansing, consecration, yeah. meal, blessing and dismissal, right? Uh, so this is ultimately what they say here. Since grace restores nature and with it worship, the general structure of worship in Eden remained call-response meal. But then, because of sin, new essential elements were incorporated into the worship of God's redeemed people within the covenant of grace. And I get that we're using, you know, covenantal language here, yeah. right? But uh, we're all of a sudden redeemed people within the covenant, gathering, cleansing, mediated access, divine communication, and then cleansing and consecration. Um, now, that's a, that's a helpful backdrop, right, right to understand uh, why worship liturgy was modified, yeah. right? Um, 
guys really thought about this. And again, after the Reformation, it wasn't just a reformation of the gospel. It was a reformation of the liturgy itself. Mm. And all of a sudden, the gospel came to bear in the liturgy itself, where we talk about how we have worship that is made possible by the Father sending the Son and the Spirit working in our hearts, right, uh, to actually save us and regenerate us and make us uh, God's people. Well, how does the gospel all of a sudden come to bear and shape your mind through worship? Uh, and this is where you get into the different elements where, like in our church service, the form, um, well, we begin with really this idea of uh, this call to worship. We've yeah. been called to come, right? That's why you have a call to worship. We've been called to come. We've been called to worship. We're commanded to worship, commanded to praise God. And uh, so we sing several songs in that vein that focus on the attributes of God, his holiness, his power, his right sovereignty, all yeah. these different, but we open with praise. Uh, we then ultimately uh, have a time of reading God's law, yeah. right? So we're praising God for who he is. Now we're encountering just God and his word. And, and what happens when you encounter God's word, right, is it's like a sword. It cuts through the heart, Your right? Exposed. Your sin is exposed. All of a sudden, now that we have seen who God is, we see how holy he is. Yep. We now realize how unholy we are. Right. And... And then, well, what's the response after reading the law of God? That is then where we enter into a time of confession of sin, okay? Very specific to be a confession of sin. Now, in our service, we have somebody leading us, right, in that confession of sin. And then after uh, the person leads the congregation, he then opens up a time for people to pray silently and confess their own sins to the Lord. Following that up, there is then a declaration of pardon right it's the it's the reminder of god's love and his assurance of forgiveness right and and then after that we praise god for his grace for his mercy for his kindness but if you want to think of it in terms of this old testament imagery right i mean we're being washed through the cleansing of our sin we're being we're being prepared still to meet with god Mm. And when the preaching ends up coming, mm. right, it is God speaking to us. It is thus saith the Lord, but it's a different form than just reading the law, right? right. Because now we have forgiveness. The, we have forgiveness. We're coming as children. And now we're being instructed. Now we're being shaped. Yep. Now we're being molded. Now we're being exhorted. Conformed. Right? Conformed to the image of Jesus Christ. And... Uh, you know, I, I I forgot, but I mean, right before we we do the preaching, right? We also do the pastoral prayer, right? And there's a prayer. Usually, that uh, pastoral prayer leads into a um, prayer of illumination. Yep. And then after we've been feasting on the word, we then have the prayer of thanksgiving. Yes. Uh, that follows up the sermon. And then one last song of a a song that's more celebratory or yep. thankful or whatever. And then it ends with a prayer benediction yep. or, um, or a benediction. Yep. Right. So that's it. That's and all, yeah. And it, you know, when, when you do communion, it's after your sermon. That's this idea of you call you, um, what, what did you say? Call blunt something feast. What was those three things? Call to worship response by faith and obedience, love and devotion, and then a fellowship meal, union yes. and communion with That's God. That's usually why communion 
takes place towards the end of the service. Yep. Yep. And it follows that pattern. So that's amazing. I mean, that just shows that. And, this and I'm might, not saying that that order is perfect or right. anything, but I just want people it's to thoughtful. understand why we've chosen the form that we have. Yeah. It's very thoughtful. And it's amazing. I think this is kind of a new thing to so many people of they might not know how thoughtful the liturgy really is or how much thought has been put into it. And they might be totally uh, – it might be a, a totally new thing that people in history and the reformers thought so much about this. I mean they really, really did think – thoroughly and biblically about how to worship God and what to do on a Sunday morning worship service. Mm-hmm. They really did. Mm-hmm. So there is just a wealth of, of resources throughout history on on this topic. Yeah. One thing I, I found especially fascinating out of this Reformation worship yeah. was uh, that, you know, the Reformers, as they reformed their liturgies, also were still kind of mindful of how people would be affected by the changing of the liturgy, right? Because you get used to something and you, you do. hear it over and over again, and all yeah. of a sudden something's missing or changed, and you're going... Hey, what's going on here? Is that okay? And uh, you know, the reformers actually gave some advice. I think Luther did. I think there's a specific quote from him uh, in this book where his encouragement was really uh, try not to change too many things. Yeah, <laughs> literally, know? try try to be accommodating to what people are you yep. know accustomed to. You know, don't change more. I guess the word would be uh, don't change more things than you need to. Right, and that's that's you hear that a lot uh, with pastors who take over a congregation or are hired into kind of revitalize a dying church maybe and if you know they they can come fresh out of seminary or or from a really good church that had a really good liturgy and their immediate their immediate response might be oh we need to change all this stuff because they have so many things wrong about how they do church here how they worship and what their liturgy is but You'll have people that maybe have been members of this church for 50 years, and it's always been done this way. And it's not saying that the way they do it, like, it, yeah, it might just be objectively wrong, and it needs to change. But it might need to change over the process of, like, five, six, seven years of this patient instruction and teaching to the where I heard one guy say to the point to where you've the pastor has so instructed them from the word on how things should be that eventually the church members come to him well why aren't we doing this then this way why are we still doing it this old way oh well that's when you know okay time to actually the congregation is behind me now mm-hmm. let's let's okay let's change our liturgy let's change these things but yeah. you hear just so many horror stories of of guys going in to you know they've just been awakened by nine marks and all that stuff and then they they jump into a, a church and they just change everything immediately and it, it just blows up <laughs> yeah you, you really have to shepherd people exactly out of you know these these bad practices yep. um and 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 out of the um old traditions yep um that that they are holding on to and say okay just just because it's something that we have done um, that's that that you've enjoyed does not mean that it is correct. Right, exactly. Mm-hmm. And I think that's why Paul tells Timothy when he says preach the word, you know, in season and out scene with, with complete patience in teaching. Mm-hmm. There is this, you know, patient aspect to our teaching and to our preaching. Um, and people are, we're all sinful and we're all mm-hmm. stubborn in some sense. And 
we all hold on to old things and in fleshly practices and sometimes you know it's just this this patient washing with the word over the course of many years that you know god uses to really change our hearts so a friend of mine that i that i used to work with um she would always ask this question why are we doing that is is that the right thing to do or is it just one of those cool things we've always done? Yeah. <laughs> and and I think it's also so appropriate. Yeah, for, it is for, totally that. For like a liturgy in a church. Yep. Man. Well, we've we've covered, I think, the whole gamut of what I would want to talk about in this topic. Cody, do you have anything, final remarks that you want to say or not? No, I think it takes a lot of pressure off our shoulders just to know God uh, has instructed us regarding what is. Yeah necessary we don't have to be novel or new we don't have to be fresh you know we don't have to keep up with the changing times and culture (laughs) i mean man that would be hard you always feel like you have to be on the cutting edge of what the world wants yeah and he knows how to care for his people and uh you know we use the means of grace phrase a lot but i mean the ordinary means of grace it's true i mean he's given us the means of grace to see his people saved and sanctified and uh, we can be assured that if he hasn't commanded or instructed us to do anything, then it's not necessary. Right. Yeah. Absolutely. Well, thanks again for tuning in to the Preach and Persuade podcast. Um, again, we're, we're going to have many more episodes in this series on ecclesiology. There's still so many more topics to breach, and I'm trying to get as much out of Cody and Adam as I possibly can while I'm up uh, in the Fargo area for the summer before I have to get back. You're going to hit the bottom of our well very soon. (laughs) Soon they won't have anything to say. (laughs) Um, But yes, if if you enjoy uh, the content that I put out with Preach and Persuade and you haven't yet left a rating on Apple Podcasts, that would be really, really awesome if you could do that. Um, I think most of the people that listen do have not yet rated it. So if that's you, man. I would really love that. That would be a wonderful gift that you could give me to leave a rating. But nonetheless, tune back in to the next episodes, and thanks again for listening. Bye.